June 17, 1979, Topeka, Kansas. Catherine Cummings, age 20, seven months pregnant, is found raped and stabbed to death with a screwdriver. September 2, 1980, Pittsburgh, Kansas. A man walks into the police department saying he has just shot two people. April 8, 1987, Wichita, Kansas. Zeola Wilson, 36, eight months pregnant, is shot to death in her car. February 19, 1989, Kansas City, Kansas. 17-year-old honor student at Piper High School Cindy Sue Bierman is found beaten and stabbed to death in her bed. February 7, 1993, Kansas City, Kansas. Police are called to the scene of a fatal shooting. Two men are seen leaving a home near the crime. One of the men pipes up, I shot the bitch. Seven people were convicted of the crimes just listed. One died in prison and one is still incarcerated. The other five are either on parole or have been released from prison. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of horrific violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host alone and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA, and no... I am not currently a resident of any of our prisons, nor am I an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting. I may think I'm an expert in lots of things, but truly, I'm just a true crime fan who researches and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me about true crime with you. Okay. Enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder.
recently came across a Kansas City Star posting from 2013. Headline, 19 Kansas inmates convicted of first-degree murder, paroled in last three years. The reporter is Hurst Laviana. It's a very well-done, thought-provoking article. I put the link in the show notes. As I've said, the Leavenworth, Kansas area is the location of several prisons. Lansing, Kansas borders Leavenworth on the south. Lansing Correctional Facility is there. It's called LCF for short. In the past, LCF was the Kansas State Prison, KSP. If you've seen In Cold Blood, it's that grim-looking prison. Many of the first-degree murderers in Laviana's article spent time in Lansing, and some were let go from there. That got me to thinking about parole in Kansas. When we hear about a solved murder case, we naturally assume the murderers are in jail or dead. Not so much. In Kansas, the death penalty is on the books, although there haven't actually been any executions since 1965, but it's not often applied. There are a few cases that stir up so much public outrage, evil, heinous crimes, that prosecutors do try them as capital cases, but they're rare. An example was the Carr Brothers case, or the Wichita Massacre. And I will never cover that on this podcast. Just a hideous story. Little side rant, unbelievably, the death penalties for that case were overturned in 2014 six to one by our criminal-friendly Kansas Supreme Court. Yes, I said criminal-friendly, and I meant it. Absolutely no doubt of their guilt, just on a technicality. The Carr brothers' convictions for the murderers were almost overturned. That would have meant putting the victims' families through the hell of new trials. The difference was one single vote on the court. Now, the news articles about the ruling do all state there is no chance of parole for the Carr brothers. I won't lie, I'm not so sure. For all our sakes, I really hope that's true. My sense is that most often the death penalty is used to get murderers to cooperate with the court. Our cases tonight 
are a few first-degree murder cases from Hearst Laviana's article. The murderers were sentenced to life in prison, but as we'll find out, life does not mean life in prison. Unless specifically indicated otherwise, there's an option for parole as early as 15 years out. In Kansas, the parole board is called the Prisoner Review Board. Their website is www.doc, D-O-C for Department of Corrections, dot K-S for Kansas, dot gov slash PRB for Prison Review Board. Almost every month, they hold public forums in different parts of the state where people can express their opposition or support to letting eligible inmates out on parole. I looked at who's coming up soon, and there are scary people on the list. Five first-degree murderers, and we'll talk about one of them later. I also looked at some cases where parole was denied. One reason listed is, quote, the community has been exceedingly opposed to the inmates' release, unquote. So it sounds like the voice of the people is heard. I wondered what it would be like to be on the board. I doubt they'd let me just vote no on all the murderers. That made me ponder when I might give a murderer parole. My first thought was the kind of case where the murderer probably wouldn't do it again, like some of the cases on the Snapped TV show. Remember the woman in Houston who ran over her cheating husband with her Mercedes, and it was caught on tape. Yes, she definitely needs to be punished, but I don't see her killing anybody again. I wouldn't be afraid if she moved in next door to me. Maybe if the murderer is in terrible health or super old, one of the men in the article is 92. Other than that, I'd have a lot of trouble letting murderers out of prison. Tonight we'll hear about the five Kansas murderers I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Judge for yourself whether the convicted murderers should be free to walk among us. Two of the cases I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast fall into the snapped category. The first one took place in Pittsburgh, Kansas, which is in southeast Kansas, really close to the Missouri border. Two people, Carol Ann Henniger, 26, and Wayne D. Palmer, 36, pull up near Bolus Supply Company in Pittsburgh, where they both work. It's a little after 6 a.m. on Tuesday, September 2nd, 1980. Before they can even get out of the vehicle, 
a car blocks Wayne's truck in. A man emerges from the car and shoots Carol several times, killing her. Wayne gets out of his pickup and is shot in the back, trying to flee. The gunman then shoots Wayne in the head, point blank. Workers in the building hear the shots. They say between 5 and 10 and call the police. The shooter drops his gun and leaves. Moments later, he walks into the police department, saying he has just shot two people. His name is Kenneth Ekis, E-K-I-S. He is 39 years old and is Carol's ex-husband of about eight months. Wayne is his former boss. I couldn't find whether Ekis was waiting at the supply company or followed the couple to work. Police detective Al Locke initially tells the papers that the motive may have been jealousy or revenge. So maybe a love triangle gone wrong or a disgruntled worker situation. I like to think Wayne was just a nice guy trying to help a co-worker who's deathly afraid of her ex-husband. Both Carol and Wayne are on findagrave.com so you can see the pictures of their gravestones. It's kind of sad. Carol was so young and came from a large family. Wayne's son died in 1999 and his wife in 2001. Some people think Ekus is a nice guy too. One old friend, Janet Marie Blazer, age 32, marries Kenneth at the Crawford County Jail in Pittsburgh after his conviction. The headline, Lovebird to Jailbird. Right after the wedding, the groom was taken to Lansing State Prison to serve his life sentence. No such thing as conjugal visits in Kansas. Listeners, I just shake my head over these women who marry murderers. Don't understand it and not sure I want to. I did find their divorce in Texas from 1988. No surprise there. Egas pled guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to life. He must have come up for parole a lot of times and was denied because he wasn't paroled until 2012 when he was in his 70s. In 2016, he was in Neosho County, Kansas, very rural county up north toward Nebraska. In 2018, he was discharged completely from parole. I can't find any record of him after that. 
Should we worry that he's out walking around free? He's 78 years old, but a big guy, six foot one, 230 pounds, bushy beard. I will tell you, I looked up his picture on the Kansas Department of Corrections website and all the rest of the murderers I'll talk about in this podcast. I want to know what they look like, just in case. Our next case is similar, Ex-Husband Snaps. Sunday, February 7th, 1993, Kansas City, Kansas. If you're not from this area, you may think Kansas City, Kansas sounds redundant. It's not. Kansas City is really two cities, one on the Kansas side of the Missouri River and the other on the Missouri side. They are two completely different cities in different states. Kansas City, Missouri, or KCMO, is the larger by far, about half a million people. Kansas City, Kansas, or KCK for short, has about 150,000 population. The whole metropolitan area, which has gobbled up a lot of the suburbs, is about two to two and a half million people. There is a high crime area of KCK as you get nearer the river, but this area where the crime takes place is quite a nice area. Bob Ewing, 52, has been divorced for a while, but he lives just next door to his ex-wife's parents' house. That Sunday, his ex-wife, Evelyn, and her new husband, Charles Wayne, come to dinner with the family at her parents' house. Bob calls Evelyn to make arrangements about some stuff he still has at her house. The conversation is pleasant enough. Bob says he would like to apologize to Charles about some past incidents, but Evelyn says there's no need to apologize and things seem fine. As it gets later in the evening, the Waynes get in their car to leave. Charles is just ready to close his door when he hears Misty Ewing, Evelyn and Bob's daughter, yell, Daddy, don't! Daddy, don't! She sees Bob coming toward the car with a gun. He fires at Charles and hits him in the legs. Misty struggles with her father to get the gun, and it goes off, sadly killing Janella Gwynn. Evelyn's sister, who was just standing outside saying goodbye to her family. Bob runs back into his house. He shouldn't have done that. Of course, before that, he should have stayed in his house and not headed out with a gun. There is another man in the house just a guess, but 
I picture a lot of drinking and griping and moaning going on for a few hours while his ex-wife and new husband are next door. Police are called to the scene. They see two men leaving the house next door. They approach and ask who fired the shots. The other man points to Bob, who then puts the last nail in his coffin and says, I shot the bitch. Listeners, if guys would just take my advice, keep your mouth shut and your gun and your junk in your pants, everyone's lives would be so much better. At trial, Ewing's defense tries to get, I kill the bitch, suppressed, since he wasn't read his Miranda rights before he said it. Well, anybody who watches Law and Order knows Miranda rights only apply when you're in custody, which Bob was not. They also claim Janella's death was an accident, and maybe if the jury hadn't heard what he said, that could have worked. Finally, they argue that the only reason he had the gun was for self-defense, because Charles was threatening him. Poor lawyers, bless their hearts. There are way too many witnesses for that to fly. Ewing is convicted and sentenced to life. He served most of his time at Lansing and was paroled in 2011, the year before Ecus. It would be interesting to know if he and Kenneth Ecus ever talked at Lansing about what they have in common. Besides their age, they're born in the same year. I found a little information on Ewing now. Looks like he lives in perhaps not so nice a part of KCK. And I think maybe Evelyn and Misty still live there too. Although in much nicer parts of town. I hope they've all been able to make their peace with what happened. Just for your information, Bob is not a big guy, five foot six, hundred and eighty pounds, seventy eight years old, race listed by the Department of Corrections as American Indian. My thoughts are about poor Janella. She was only fifty years old when she was killed because some guy decided to be an idiot. Janella's grave is on find a grave, but just with basic name and dates for her, no picture. She's buried at Chapel Hill Memorial Gardens, which is in KCK at 701 North 94th Street, just off State Avenue. If you know the area, that's not too far from Legend Shopping Center. One thing about the Find a Grave website 
is that it depends on volunteers to post pictures of gravestones and information about buried people so that the dead aren't forgotten. If you're in the area, stop by and see Johnella and maybe post a picture. It sounds strange, but walking around cemeteries is interesting and good for your soul. Sign up on findagrave.com. It's free and give it a try. The next two cases are sickening. The victims are heavily pregnant women. The cases get a lot of press because the prosecutors charge both murderers with the deaths of the unborn babies as well as that of the mothers. Just like now, this is controversial. Ultimately, they're both really in jail because of the murders of the mothers. The first case is that of Catherine Cummings, only 20 years old, six and a half months pregnant, living in an apartment in the central part of Topeka. It's the summer of 1979. Her mother, Mary, age 40, tries to help her out as much as possible. She's a popular waitress at Bobo's Drive-In in Topeka. Bobo's is still a Topeka landmark, a 50s-style hamburger joint, and Mary was well-known to the customers as a friendly face. It's just so heartbreaking to think what she went through losing her only daughter in such a brutal way. Nowadays, central Topeka is a high crime area. A few years ago, I had to commute to Topeka during the week for a couple of years. Since I hate commuting, I bought a little duplex bungalow in central Topeka to stay in during the week. I got it dirt cheap. I soon found out why it was so cheap. The first night I moved in, there was a banging on the front door about 9 p.m. I looked out and saw two federal marshals in tactical gear on the front porch. I opened up fast and tried to look innocent. They were there to serve warrants on a very bad guy. Luckily for me, they were really nice, even though I was living at a fugitive's last known address. They told me to be very careful in that neighborhood. A few months later, two Topeka policemen were gunned down during a robbery at the Dillon supermarket just a few blocks away near Washburn University. I was very careful while I lived there. A newspaper article on the Cummings case mentions that Catherine kept a knife in her purse for protection. So I'm thinking it might have been a bad neighborhood 40 years ago, too. By the way, I carried a 38 Special. On June 17, 1979, Catherine is found murdered in her apartment raped and stabbed to death with 
a screwdriver. Adrian C. Washington, 22 years old, is arrested for the murder of Catherine and her unborn baby. That drew national attention. Catherine was 26 weeks pregnant, so the fetus was not considered viable in those days. Charging murder in that case was quite controversial. Another aspect of the case was also a little groundbreaking. Catherine had been able to get to her knife and cut Adrian's shoulder badly. He left blood in the apartment as well as fingerprints and hairs. In 1979, there is a progressive young forensics analyst at the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Her name is Eileen Bernaugh. She heads up the biological evidence unit for the agency. At trial, she uses some cutting-edge science to prove the blood droplets found at the scene belong to the defendant. Her analysis techniques are challenged in the courts because they haven't been used in Kansas before. I couldn't find any more information about exactly what was so new about her evidence. It, it couldn't have been forensic DNA because that's still a few years in the future. But the result of Eileen's good work is that Adrian Washington is convicted of the murder and the courts uphold the scientific evidence later in an appeal. Now, Adrian Washington is a guy I would never let out. His sentence was life plus 15 years. That's pretty meaningless as it turns out. He looks scary too. Prison fit, 5'11", 200 pounds, and even today, he's only in his early 60s. In 2007, he gets paroled from LCF. His record shows him in and out of custody. Not sure what that's all about. Last known on parole in Shawnee County. That's the Topeka area. Catherine's mother, Mary, died in 1999, so at least Washington was still in jail then. She probably thought for life. Catherine and the baby are buried with Mary. They're all together in Topeka. They're on Find a Grave. You can leave virtual flowers there. Adrian is 63 now. Quick Google shows him in Topeka. Let's hope that he's a thoroughly changed man trying to atone for the horrific crime he committed. Our second case of pregnant woman homicide isn't quite as horrific, but it's very sad too. Ziola Wilson age 36, is eight months pregnant on April 8, 1987. She is sitting in a car in the driveway of a home in Wichita. 
when her ex-boyfriend, 43-year-old Willard Green, walks up and shoots her in the head, right arm, and chest, killing her. Doctors managed to deliver her baby boy by cesarean section, but he dies soon after. Green is arrested and is found to be suffering from a gunshot wound to the chest. And listeners, I hope he was really suffering with it and it bothered him the rest of his life. During his trial, Green throws a chair at a guard and gets in a fight with another guard. Lovely man. And this, I promise no profanity, so we'll call him a dirtbag, tried to show that Ziola was the one with the gun, and she shot him first. That's why he was shot in the chest. So her death was just the result of him defending himself. Nobody believed that, and I certainly don't either. My best guess would be that she reached out to push the gun away, and that's how he got shot. Good for her. And she got shot in her right arm trying to defend herself. Then he just executed her. On Ancestry.com, a good genealogy-type website, there's a picture in Ziola's yearbook from her junior year in high school. She looks like a thoughtful, sweet girl, kind of a dreamy look on her face. There's no picture of the gravestone on Find a Grave, so... If you're in Wichita, she and the baby are in Maple Grove Cemetery, which looks like it's not very far from Wichita State University. For once, I have good news about the parole board. This scumbag never got parole, and he died at Lansing Correctional Facility in 2012. The bad news is... He got to make this world a worse place until the ripe old age of 68. He's not in Find a Grave. I'm, I'm tempted to put him out there just so I can virtually spit on his grave. When inmates die at Lansing Correctional Facilities and their bodies aren't claimed by anybody to take somewhere else, they are buried at Mount Muncie Cemetery in Lansing. I'm guessing that's probably where his gravestone is. Um, if you remember, that's where our Leavenworth Ripper from last week's episode was also buried. So I'm guessing I maybe I could go out there and spit on his grave for real. But it's also possible maybe he mellowed out and completely changed in prison and 
tried to do everything he could to make up for his horrible crime, but I seriously doubt it. At 3.11 a.m., February 19th, 1989, a 911 call comes in from an upscale home in Piper, Kansas, which is a suburban neighborhood in the far western part of Kansas City, Kansas. The caller is 20-year-old Sherry Bierman, who has just arrived at the house, which belongs to her parents. She lives there in a basement apartment. By the way, her two toddlers are in the car with her. She reports a possible burglary. Sherry ignores what the dispatcher tells her to do, which is get out of the house, go next door, and call back from there. No cell phones, 89. Instead, 30 seconds later, she calls back from inside the house, hysterical, saying that her sister is on the floor and there is blood all over. The residence is soon swarming with police. Leonard and Barbara Bierman, the parents, soon arrive home to this chaos. Sherry runs up to her father saying, Daddy, 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 something terrible happened to Cindy. As an aside, Cindy has a unique spelling, S-Y-N-D-I. So I'll apologize in advance if I keep messing up and say Sydney sometimes. It is Cindy. Sherry's sister Cindy is a 17-year-old honor student at Piper High School. Looking at her senior picture, she's a typical cute little teen with feathery blonde hair. Police find her beaten and stabbed to death in her bedroom. Cindy was born July 21st, 1971, to Barbara and Leonard Bierman. They posted a description of her at the Parents of Mismurdered Children website. That is just heartbreaking. You can feel their love and pain just reading the post. Cindy Sue Bierman was a five foot three inch, blonde haired, blue eyed, 17 year old bundle of energy. As a young child, Cindy was always busy with something. Throughout her life, she was an active member of our church. Cindy didn't always agree with us and was sometimes a little snippy, but she had a conscience that enabled her to care about others' opinions and seek forgiveness when she needed it. We have many wonderful memories of Cindy, including her beautiful smile, her care and concern for others, her love of family, and the positive way in which she touched many lives. We wish you could have known her. When Cindy was born, 
the Beermans already had a three-year-old daughter, Sherry, whom they had adopted when she was only three days old. Their family was complete with the addition of second daughter, Cindy. As in all families, especially those with teenage girls, the Beermans had ups and downs, but nothing really out of the ordinary. Sherry had gotten pregnant in high school and dropped out to get married. She had two little boys, one and three, and was divorced at age 20. Barbara and Leonard were doing well financially. Len was a respected IRS agent who loved to play golf, so they lived in a nice home near a golf course in Piper. The basement had a finished apartment where Sherry could live and the parents could help with the boys while Sherry tried to get her life back on course. Cindy was headed for the University of Kansas in the fall. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that Sherry was trying very hard to take responsibility for her life. She was running with a bad crowd. There are differing stories about the events of the night of the murder, but this account is fairly close. Early Saturday evening, two men arrive at Sherry's apartment. The two men are low-life druggies, petty criminals, Archie A.J. Owens, Jr., 21, and Conrad Joseph Hernandez, 24. As Joe Hernandez will say later, he isn't Sherry's boyfriend, but they do have sex sometimes. They drop Sherry's kids off with a babysitter. When they get back to the Beerman house, Cindy's car and a couple of other cars are at the house. Cindy has gotten home from work and is watching a video with Renee and Lisa, a couple of her friends. Sherry calls her from the basement to find out when Cindy's friends are leaving. Then, at least according to Joe, the three in the basement have an orgy. Ew. Believe me, I've seen all their photos. You don't want to picture this. Upstairs, Cindy tells her friends that she is afraid to be alone in the house with Sherry and the men. Cindy's boyfriend, Matt, will later testify that Cindy confided in him the Thursday before the murder that she was so afraid of Sherry she didn't want to go home sometimes. Unfortunately, or maybe lucky for them, neither Lisa nor Renee can spend the night, and they both leave before 11.30, and Cindy goes to bed. In the meantime, dumb, dumber, and dumbest go out riding around, discussing the state of the world economy, perhaps. And while they're out, they pick up some two-by-fours at a construction site, as you do at some point after whatever they've been doing, Sherry takes them in back to their apartment, picks up her kids, and arrives back at the Beerman house in Piper about 3 a.m. When the police arrive at the house, Cindy is found brutally murdered. The house has been ransacked, 
and valuables are missing. Sherry isn't officially a suspect at that time. Now, Matt will later testify that Sherry and Cindy's dad remarked to him that morning that he would bet his last dollar that Sherry did it. At trial, Len would say that he had no memory of saying that. Initially, Sherry tells police that she was out most of the night and no one visited her at the house. But she has to change that story after Renee and Lisa are questioned. The police search the apartment where AJ and Joe are living with AJ's 18-year-old girlfriend, Tamby Lewis. I kid you not, Tamby, T-A-M-B-I. There, they find the stolen goods, but dumber, dumbest, and literally crazy Tamby have fled. A few days later, Hernandez turns himself in in Tulsa and agrees to plead guilty and testify against Sherry and Archie. He is charged with second-degree murder. Archie and Tamby make it as far as Arizona before they are caught in March. A.J. and Sherry stand trial in July. He doesn't testify, but Sherry does. Hernandez is the prosecution's star witness. This is Sherry's story at trial. After the trio got back to the house, they all went in through the upstairs, not the basement. She got scared when she saw them ransacking the house. She went down to the basement and locked the door. She said she heard things hitting the floor and didn't know if Cindy was home. Of course, she knew Cindy was home. A few minutes later, Joe kicked in the basement door and said, let's go, do what I say or I'm going to do it to you. So she drove them back to their apartment where her kids were. Yes, the babysitter was AJ's live-in girlfriend, Tambi Lewis, who, by the way, had just been released a week ago from a juvenile facility after serving time for homicide. That's who Sherry left her babies with. I feel like giving her the death penalty just for that. Sherry says Joe told her to take the kids home, report a burglary, and not tell anyone who did it or she'd be sorry. She denied any knowledge of what AJ and Joe had done, including saying she never saw any two-by-fours. This is not an implausible story. What Joe testifies to is already on record from when he pled guilty a few months ago. I'm guessing Sherry's legal team is pretty sure Archie A.J. Owens Jr. won't testify. So she and her lawyers have some time to craft a decent story. This is what Conrad Joseph Hernandez's story is. When they got to the house, the three all went upstairs to the bedrooms. He and Owens each had a two-by-four. 
Owens board had nails in it. They hit Cindy several times with the boards. Hernandez says he then went back downstairs. He heard Owens tell Sherry, get her, and he heard a loud thump. Sherry came downstairs and went back with some knives from the kitchen. Bloody butcher knives were introduced into evidence at the trial. According to the pathologist, Cindy was beaten and stabbed repeatedly. And when she was in profound shock, her throat was cut. While all that was going on, Hernandez says he kicked in the basement door and stole some things from down there and started loading up the car. Sherry and Owens finally came downstairs and helped him load stuff. They went back to Tambi and AJ's apartment. Sherry got her kids, and he told her she should go home and call the police. He never threatened her, and the last thing she said to him was, I'll talk to you later. The jury took some time over the decision, but ultimately they believed the prosecution's contention that Sherry didn't have the guts to kill her alone, and she enlisted the help of Owens and Hernandez to do it. Her motive was jealousy. There were rumors that Len and Barbara might also have been targets. Listeners, I can believe that. If Sherry resents Cindy so much, she probably hates her parents too. She would collect insurance and an inheritance. I suspect after killing Cindy, they just freaked out and wanted to get away. I shudder to think what might have occurred had the Beermans arrived earlier. Sheriff's investigator Rick Grosko reported a long history of animosity between Cindy Beerman and her older adopted sister. They just flat didn't get along. We had a Cinderella situation here. Adopted sister, a natural child, and basically two philosophies of life under one roof. They seemed to go together like oil and water. Her friend Lisa said, There was jealousy because Cindy is pretty and popular. Sherry got pregnant and dropped out. Who did what that night depends on which lying murderer you believe. Personally, I think Sherry found two stupid guys she could manipulate. She got them to agree to a burglary and then kept egging them on until they helped her murder her sister. Len and Barbara Bierman went on with life as best they could after tragically losing both their daughters. They lovingly raised Sherry's two boys. Len died last year. They got involved with the National Organization of Parents of Murdered Children. This is a respected group that was founded to, quote, provide support and assistance to all survivors of homicide victims while working to create a world free of murder, unquote. 
They have an interesting program called the Parole Block Program, or PBP, to, quote, give survivors a sense of control, as well as a positive outlet for the anger, frustration, and disillusionment they feel with the criminal justice system. PBP allows them to participate in the parole process by attempting to keep murderers behind bars for their minimum sentence, thus protecting society from potential repeat offenders, unquote. The website for that group is www.pomc, for parents of murdered children, dot com. Conrad Joseph Hernandez was paroled in 2012. I'm not sure where he is. He was paroled to Saline County, Kansas, which is in north central Kansas, out toward Colorado. 5'11, 184 pounds, hazel eyes, brown hair, kind of squirrely looking. Archie A.J. Owens Jr. was sentenced to life in prison and released in 2015 in Wichita. He is now 51 years old. He's a little guy, only 5'4", 150 pounds, blue eyes, brown hair, pretty nondescript looking. Sherry is still in prison, serving a life sentence, not aging well. The women's prison in Kansas is in Topeka. Sherry was involved in a sex scandal at that facility in 2010. A male employee was exchanging contraband for sex with women inmates and got one of them pregnant. Sherry was apparently jealous that she had been replaced in this employee's affections and she ratted him out. There's a good article about the case at the Prison Legal News website. Also, if you take a look at the list of offenders for the Kansas Prisoner Review Board's September 2019 public comment session showing offenders possibly eligible for parole, you will find Inmate number 49808, Sherry Lynn Bierman. So now you know how I feel about parole for murderers. I wish I had all the answers, but we can't have a perfect system unless we see directly into the hearts and minds of murderers. And only God can do that. I'd be interested in hearing what you think. The blog for the podcast is Prison City Murders, all one word, dot B L U B R R Y. That's blueberry without the E's, dot net. So you can post comments there. Right now, the blog is basically just the show notes, 
But maybe as I get more used to all this media stuff and how things fit together, I'll post more stuff out there. This is a quote from Doug McGee in his one-of-a-kind book, What Murder Leaves Behind. In the aftermath of murder, families need some sense of counterbalancing justice. Exactly what that justice might entail differs from survivor to survivor. But all agree that they expect a realistic expression of regret and concern from the criminal justice system. For survivors of homicide victims, the early release or parole of convicted murderers is seen as a denigration of their loved one and results in extremely intensified emotions. McGee has a good website, www.dougmcgee.com. That's D-O-U-G-M-A-G-E-E. It's well worth exploring. You can get his books. He writes fiction and nonfiction on Amazon. Finally, a few eye-opening statistics about sentencing and parole from the parents of murdered children. The average maximum sentence length for murder was 20 years and 11 months. The average maximum time served was nine years and two months, less than half the actual sentence. 29% of parole discharges returned to prison were reincarcerated for murder. I used a lot of different sources for these cases. They're all online. If you go to the show notes, there's a long list of links. I think I got all of them, but let me know if I missed something and I'll add the link. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated, honest. Thanks for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.